everyone, and welcome to episode 60 of Yukon 360. That is the only podcast in the history of human civilization that covers the University of Connecticut from each and every conceivable angle. Uh, we are coming to you from around the great state of Connecticut because uh, we are working remotely during this pandemic. And joining me today are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hi, Tom. Hi, Julie. Uh, and Ken Best. I am here on the other side of the geography, I guess. Not a picture. That's There's no picture of me. You can't see me. Well, they can't see us anyway. I hope none of you can see us. If you can, that's a very disturbing development. <laughs> Sadly, not with us today is Maxine Philivong, uh, our ace uh, student worker who uh, graduated uh, from the University of Connecticut this month and uh, is, is off uh, to great things. But uh, we miss her and, and wish her the best. And uh, I, I imagine she's probably listening to this. I hope so. Hi, Maxine. We've got uh, some exciting stuff for you this week. We're going to talk about a, a rock and roll pioneer. We're going to talk about some uh, some controversy at UConn in the past. Uh, but first, uh, why don't we uh, talk about some news, some things that are happening right now. Julie, you want to talk about something, right? Yes. In non-COVID-19 news, uh, UConn announced that we are going to be piloting a test-optional undergraduate admissions process for the next three applications periods. Um, so although we already use a holistic application review process, you know, we give kind of equal weight to all pieces of a student's application. We are having it be optional that students enter their SAT or ACT scores if they choose. Um so they say that students may submit SAT or ACT results, but no admissions decision would be impacted and no student would be disadvantaged if a standardized test score is not provided. This has kind of started to catch on across the country. More than 70 institutions nationwide have announced this spring that they're adopting either pilot or permanent policies like this, and uh, several have been doing this in recent years. So it's very exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this, how this goes. Very cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. I just noticed that uh, the University of California system has just uh, announced something similar. Yeah, cl I mean, clearly these are being impacted by the pandemic, so that's kind of the impetus for why right now, but it's already a trend that was starting to, to catch on. I, I like the pilot approach to it. We'll, we'll, we'll do it and we'll see how it works and uh, we'll see what we learn from it. A lot of experiments mm -hmm. happening. Uh, <laughs> a lot of experiments happening. Um. Before we go any further, I wanted to thank one of our, our listeners, uh, Linda Tokarski. Uh, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Linda Tokarski, uh, who graduated from the School of Allied Health Professions in 1970. She heard our previous episode where we talked about the um, protests on campus that followed Kent State, and she wrote a very thoughtful email in. Um, I just want to read a little bit from it where she kind of talks about what the, uh, the atmosphere uh, was like on campus back then. Um, uh, in part, it reads, uh, there was a big caravan from campus that went down to the March on Washington. I didn't go, but many of my friends did. There were frequent protests at the ROTC buildings and rallies in front of the old student union that filled the entire quad. After the Cambodia invasion and then Kent State, things became much angrier. There were organized marches through campus. I remember sitting in an abnormal psych watching the protesters going by. The protesters were just so angry. They would break into classrooms asking why students were not out protesting. I think they would also break into dorm meetings. I was never afraid, but there was an element of fear on campus. Um, as a PT student, it was difficult to actively protest. Our teachers really did not approve of the protests, and I think in many ways conveyed it was not in our interest to participate. Some of us felt that we could do more by graduating and working with returning soldiers. Uh, so a really interesting perspective uh, from someone who was there at the time, who experienced those protests. And uh, Linda, thank you for sending that in. Um, 
we we encourage everyone who's listening to uh, anything you want. Anything you want to tell us about your time at UConn, we'll be happy to talk about it uh, on the show. I love that. I love having somebody's real perspective on something that we've talked about because it did sound like it was kind of a scary time, and especially somebody who didn't participate and um, kind of felt that they could do better by graduating and helping out that way. I thought that was really interesting. So thank you, Linda. And now uh, turning to something else that was in the news recently, um, the, 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 the death of a, of a rock and roll pioneer. And who better to talk about that than our own maven of the Wall of Sound studio, <laughs> Ken Best. Ken, you've got a, a story for us. What, uh, what are we going to hear? We're talking about, of course, the death of uh, Richard Penniman, known to the world as Little Richard, who was one of the pioneers of rock and roll in the 1950s and member of the first group of musicians inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, his piano pounding, screaming, and kinetic performances injected raw energy into this new form of music uh, for the post-World War II generation. Uh, it crossed racial lines and influenced uh, many musicians from James Brown and the Beatles to Prince. Uh, Little Richard had 16 top 100 chart hits from 1956 to 1959, and his songs have been covered uh, by a wide range of musicians, including many contemporary performers. Uh, I thought the best place to go for a perspective uh, from the eyes of history and, and music uh, at UConn would be Professor Jeffrey Agbar, who's a historian, but he's also the founding director of UConn's Center for the Study of Popular Music and the author of the book Hip-Hop Revolution, the Culture and Politics of Rap. It's, I think, often hard to understate how important Little Richard has been to popular music. And, you know, we often say, oh, well, this person was a giant. When we use terms like that too frequently, we don't quite capture the scope of someone like Little Richard, who was so important, not just the development of rock and roll music, but I tell people all the time, your favorite artists were most likely influenced by Little Richard. Little Richard shaped aesthetics, sound, dance, uh, the energy, the frenetic energy that we see across genres, you know, from funk, soul, rock and roll. We think of someone like Prince who influenced so many people. And I'm a fan of people today like Andre 3000, who's a rapper, but has also uh, gone into singing. And I, I love Childish Gambino, who's a rapper, actor, comedian, who also sings. They are influenced by Prince. And there's so many ways that we can measure his, his impact. And so, yeah, he's, he's a, a formidable figure in the scope of popular music you know, across genres. He credits many people for influencing his style early on, which, of course, was the late 40s, early 1950s to mid-1950s. He specifically cites the gospel influence as many R&B and uh, rock and soul singers do. Marion Williams, uh, who was with the Ward Singers and the Stars of Faith. Uh, Miss Rhythm, Ruth Brown, uh, who was, of course, a star in the 1950s. And S Sister Rosetta Thorpe, who unexpectedly, uh, just looking at old videos of her with a, strapping on an electric guitar and playing leads, belting out gospel songs. So, so that foundation, complete with the whoops and the, and the, uh, and the shouts, uh, is there. Uh, when you watch those videos, and it's just remarkable how you can see the, the connection 
to, to the roots of rock and roll. I mean, we think about so many people who covered it. Their, their list of folks who covered Little Richard is, uh, is too long. But I'm just thinking of some giant like like Elvis Presley, who was also influenced by Little Richard, but also the Beatles influenced by Little Richard. And Paul McCartney talking about how his uh, vocalizations, he learned to hone his own singing skills when they opened for Little Richard, the Beatles opened for Little Richard in 1962 during his tours in Europe. But uh, we, we think about the folks who influenced Little Richard, and it's interesting to see that, uh, that nothing comes out of a vacuum, but you know, expressions are often a consequence of a long intimate exchange with other expressions in different cultural spheres. And we certainly see that with Little Richard. And when I, mean, I think about the people who, you know, who were influenced by him, they're also folks like uh, Roy Brown, you know, an early R&B performer who helped shape Little Richard and gave him opportunities when he started off in Atlanta. Yeah, you're right. There, there are so many places and, 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 uh, and people who shaped him, who, you know, of course, was quite innovative in his own space. Just how, how powerful his impact uh, imprint was on popular music. Having gone back and looked at a lot of material about him and some of the tributes, uh, there was a, there's an author named Richie Unterberger who's a music historian and does a lot of books on musical uh, figures. He says uh, he was crucial in upping the voltage from high-powered R&B into the similar yet different guise of rock and roll. And, and that seems to be what is coming out when you see what James Brown said uh, and what many others have said is that his energy – and his stage presence is really the thing that hit them. Mick Jagger, the same thing, because he performed uh, on the same stages as uh, Little Richard when he was opening for them, and they were opening for him early on in their career. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So at that time, we could go back to 1950s, what Little Richard, what he must have looked like for people in this. I mean, think of um, Fast Domino. And in fact, there are three people who are essential to laying the foundation for rock and roll. Fast Domino, Little and Chuck Berry. You know, Fast Domino played the piano and, and sang. Again, that, that, that frenetic energy that we associate with Little Richard was absent. Uh, Chuck Berry, who played the guitar in fascinating, powerful ways and, and ways that, you know, might be reminiscent of some extent, some Ike Turner styles and sounds. But, but that, that energy he had with his duck walk that was uh, sort of ratcheting up and, and being close to what we might see with rock and roll. And, but when you, if you step outside of sort of R&B, uh, the rhythm and blues of that period and that early rockers, uh, the only thing that would come close to that sort of energy I would see would be in some swing bands and some of uh, like Cab Calloway's sort of, you know, his, so he would, you know, swing his hair and mm-hmm. he had a lot of energy. Don't let the Nicholas Brothers jump out, you know, and dance and have have that sort of energy. But in terms of a performer, even in most swing bands, whether we're looking at, you know, Benny Goodman, any of the big bands, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong and others, that sort of energy was absent from popular music. And, and also in the late 1940s and into the 1950s, the rise of bebop jazz which was very subdued, you know? So you had a cool, a different expression of cool coming out of, you know, Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Bird Parker. But again, that sort of energy that you saw on that scale in popular music, Little Richard was a guy who did all that in one performance. And it was 
quite extraordinary to see. And I, and I think when you kind of look at the, the landscape of popular music and kind of think, you know, what did it look like before Little Richard and after Little Richard, you get a chance to just see how innovative he was in so many ways. Well, you see that, I think, in some of those early rock and roll films, which were pretty much vehicles just to get the music out on out there to to the public because uh in the days of alan freed and the and the beginning of what were the rock concert tours which are just collections of people playing their hits and then moving on to the next town everything changed once little richard was on the stage it's sort of amped up and that was why he sort of was towards the end of the show back in those days and i remember on one of those films chuck berry Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, and this is much later on, we're reflecting on all that. And it was kind of like the uh, the gathering at Sun Studios between Elvis and, and and Jerry Lee, Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash, the, the great icons of, of, the, of the form sitting there talking about how they started everything. And of course, everyone credited Richard, Little Richard, who was trying to take credit on his own, as, as, he, as he always did. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because... I think he's the one who said it's not con- uh, conceited, it's confident. And I think when he celebrated himself. And I think it was, to some extent, we have to remind ourselves that many of these people covered Little Richard. And in case of Pat Boone going higher on the charts with his version of Tutti Frutti. And I think that you know, Little Richard was quite aware of the uh, his circumstances the finances, the sort of contracts he signed, uh, the sort of hyper-exploitation he experienced in the music industry, the gangsterism in music industry, uh, the extent to which he was, even in his popularity and imprint uh, for years, sort of still never got this, the fame that someone like Elvis and people who explicitly said, I model my, the, the, the Beatles, right? For years, as you start to see rock and roll be increasingly associated with being creative and innovative by white people, right? And then Little Richard becomes just a sort of guy who may have associated with some rockers, you know, that when that narrative seemed to become dominant, and I, I will say that in my classes at UConn for years, I uh, tell my students that rock and roll uh, evolved out of black music, that African-Americans were the the, the the people who founded rock and roll and created rock and roll and named Chuck Berry, Little Richard, for Pastor Domino. And my students are almost always surprised they assume that Elvis created rock and roll and that, that, that whites were the ones who invented it. And there might've been a couple of white guys, black guys who may have come around. And so I think that for little Richard, in some ways, even as, as, as people acknowledged him, he often felt simultaneously overlooked. And, uh, and it was beautiful to see that in his later years, that, that there seemed to be a turn and a more explicit celebration and recognition of his imprint in the genre not just being inducted into the, rock, the initial class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 86, but also all the other accolades he received, you know, in movies and documentaries and books and so many other spaces. So I think in many ways he may have felt redeemed, certainly by the end of his years. And it's beautiful to see that he lived this long, I mean, 87 years, and let alone the sort of global imprint in popular music and to, to adoring crowds of all races. I mean, he lived a remarkable life. And to meet and to you know hobnob and enjoy the quality of life that this guy had and influence so many people and to bring so much joy to the world. I mean, he really had a remarkable life. 87 years. It's really outstanding. Little Richard still can be heard in lots of music today. And he will never be replicated, of course, because he was unique. And as he would always tell people, he was the architect of rock and roll. 
he, he plainly claimed that and everybody gave him credit. Rest in peace, little Richard. Great interview, Ken. Um, everyone out there, I think, is probably a little fatigued with the, the COVID-19, with the pandemic and all that's happening. And, uh, you know, it's, what, we, what we do here is we like to provide an escape from the, the troubles and trials of our day. Uh, especially at Tom's History Corner, we like to uh, revisit the happy times of bygone years, uh, times that were less stressful and less upsetting. So this week, we're going to go back to one of those times, World War II. So uh, during World War II on campus, there was a professor of German language called uh, Theodore Karl Siegel, and he actually was from Germany. He immigrated to the U.S. in 1931, uh, which is when he started working at UConn. Uh, he became a citizen of the United States in 1938. Um, and, uh, by, uh, by many accounts, he seemed to fit in fine with the faculty at UConn. His daughter went to UConn. Uh, however, when the war started, um, people began to get a little suspicious of his sympathies. Uh, there was a debate on campus at Beach Hall, uh, in 1940, uh, over the war. Now, remember, this is before the U.S. had entered the war. And, uh, uh, Professor Siegel stressed that he was not a Nazi, a member of the Nazi party, but he, he understood why Germany invaded France. He understood... So he was sort of making the case for Germany, that they were encircled by the Allies and they, they didn't have another option, that kind of thing. And so that rubbed some people on campus the wrong way, as you can imagine. And uh, complicating the problem is that they were using textbooks in the German language classes that had been printed in Germany in the 30s. <laughs> uh, and as you can imagine, uh, those uh, textbooks uh, were, were sort of flavored with Nazism. Oh, boy. Uh, there was one in particular called In Deutschland that uh, was kind of rapidly pro-Nazi that uh, the Daily Campus wrote uh, kind of a, a series of exposés about. They didn't name Siegel in the stories, but it was kind of clear who was assigning this book. So there was a little more tension. And then uh, in 1944, uh, in January of 1944, he was actually charged with lying on his citizenship application. This is a really interesting case. The the prosecuting the, the federal prosecuting attorney who filed the charges against him was Tom Dodd, uh, for whom the Dodd Center is named. And the, the argument was that he had never really intended to renounce his German citizenship and that he never really believed himself to be American, which is a, a really, like, slippery kind of charge to make. Like, okay. how, how do you prove that? Um, so there's actually a federal trial in Hartford in the summer of 1944 in which uh, there were students and faculty members who testified against him and also students and faculty members who testified on his behalf. Uh, two of the faculty members who testified against him are names that people will recognize. Um... Professor Schenker. Oh, wow. Uh, and Professor Arjona also testified against him. Oh, my God. I love when our buildings pop up in these stories. But there was no, like, he, he was not a Nazi Party member. There was no, like, smoking gun. Uh, the government had uh, opened his been opening his mail for a while, uh, which <laughs> something they did during the war. Uh, and well, actually, after the war. <laughs> and for decades. Um but, uh, he, you know, he wrote letters to his family in Germany saying, you know, basically, like, I'm with you. I, you know, I support you. I hope, you know, we win this thing kind of thing. And so that was, I guess, the, the crux of the evidence. Now, at the time, he was suspended with pay from the university, and there was a lot of pressure on the university to fire him. Um, but uh, uh, President Jorgensen and uh, Albert Waugh, the provost, wanted to resist it. They said, let's let the, the trial happen. Let's let due process happen. We don't want to fire a professor uh, who has tenure. Um until we really, all the facts are in. So he was convicted. Uh, Professor Siegel was convicted of, of lying. He had his citizenship restricted. It wasn't revoked, interestingly. And the, the case actually gained national prominence because he appealed. Uh, and while it was an appeal, Jorgensen still said, we're not going to fire this guy until the process has exhausted itself. 
This was taken up by uh, Walter Winchell, uh, who was a, a nationally uh, broadcast radio person. He was kind of a combination of like a, a, a political talk show guy and also a kind of a celebrity gossip guy. He was hugely influential and famous at the time. And uh, he started taking this up as an example of uh, the, the universities being soft on Hitler and, uh, you know, the, the, the terrible university faculties not really caring about America. He challenged President Jorgensen to a debate on the radio, uh, which never happened. Um, but it stirred up a lot of uh, anger. And uh, the American Legion, which at the time was a very uh, politically active organization, it was a veterans organization formed after World War One. The American Legion in the state uh, got involved and they they wanted to, they lobbied the legislature to cut off UConn's funding unless they fired this professor. And um, eventually uh, his appeal was denied and the Board of Trustees did, in fact, fire him. He uh, he did not get deported to Germany or anything. He spent the rest of his life in the United States, although there were certain restrictions on his citizenship. Um, so it, it's uh, it's a really interesting case. I was reading the contemporary newspaper accounts of the trial and um, it's strange because it. I mean, the guy was, you know, probably had some, I guess, pro-German opinions, but I don't know. It's a weird thing to try to prove in court that somebody, like, didn't really mean he wanted to be a citizen when he applied. Right. It's his intention. That's, yeah. And a few years later, when McCarthyism uh, came to campus, a lot of faculty members brought this up. And they said, like, you know, this was a bad precedent because now we sort of established that the board of trustees will fire someone because of political reasons. Yeah. Interesting stuff because Dodd then went on to become part of the prosecution in the Nuremberg trials, of course, which is uh, That's right. what he's known That's for. Right. And Walter Winchell was Ed Sullivan's competitor in those days in the tabloids in New York City where they were writing mm. the stories. And then the real nugget for those of you who remember the original Untouchable story TV show. The one with, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who played Elliot Ness. Oh, uh, Robert Stack? He was the narrator for The Untouchables. He opened the beginning of the show telling you what the, the crime was that he was going to try and uh, deal with that episode. I, I wish, uh, you know, and this is obviously 1945, a, a time when there was not like a radio broadcast weren't recorded or stored or anything. But I would love to be <laughs> able to hear or even see a transcript of those uh, radio broadcasts where Winchell was... Uh, Inveighing against the University of Connecticut and challenging, you know, President oh, Jorgensen awesome. to a debate. Wow, it was smart of Jorgensen not to engage. Yes, he was. He was not interested. The the letters that he and Waugh exchanged about this were Jorgensen clearly thought the whole thing was ridiculous um, and was annoyed that the it becomes it had, it had become such an issue in the press hmm. in 1945. You know, getting uh, being put on blast by Walter Winchell was about as, as prominent as it could get. <laughs> Pretty big deal, going viral. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the 1945 equivalent of going viral. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So if, if, you know, if you, uh, if you're around then and you remember it, if you are Walter Winchell, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email. I believe he's at the great microphone in the sky right now. Yes. Well, yes. yes. Wal Walter yes. has left us some time ago, I think. <laughs> um, well, that's, that, I think that's just about it for this week. Ken, there was something you wanted to uh, tell us about, though, before we left, right? If you can recall back to episode 57, where I mentioned that. Uh, one of the studies that I wrote about, uh, uh, my friend Dave Atkin on the communications faculty, he did one of the early studies with a former student of his who was actually in China on the beginnings of the pandemic in, uh, in that area of China where it, where it began. Uh, that study has been seen all over the world. And uh, he got an email from a professor at a university in Lithuania uh, requesting information and uh, some collaborative effort on a paper that's being done. 
And in the citations is my Yukon Today story. So I've, I've been cited in a study about the pandemic in Lithuania. Very cool. Which is, Look uh, at you. Bit, which, which is kind of strange because I don't have a PhD in anything. <laughs> <laughs> but you wrote about it. Yes. And, 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 cool. and Julie told me, I'm Lithuanian. When I told her, about I am. That. I'm one of my many, uh, many pieces of my background is Lithuanian. Yes, Stagius, my maiden name. Really, I did not know that. I was trying to find what happened to uh, Professor Siegel's daughter, Betina Siegel, because she was a UConn graduate too, and she was sort of tied up in some of this. Weirdly, uh, googling her, there is currently a very popular like mommy blogger named Betina Siegel. Really? Yeah, who I, I, I mean, is much, much, much too young. But, but that's not a like common sounding name no it's interesting yeah hmm. fortunately that paper is in english because i received a copy of the initial paper where i am cited and it's it wasn't done in english because that's of course the one of the dominant languages in the world now of the seven thousand languages that are spoken around the world i did a whole i did a little bit of research on lithuania oh but we don't need to talk about that we have other things to do <laughs> That's very cool for you, Ken. Well, and that's uh, all the more reason uh, for all our listeners to uh, frequently visit today.ucon.edu, where you will see tomorrow's academic citations today. <laughs> um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at Yukon Podcast. You can follow at Maine underscore old, which is a, a forum for all kinds of uh, old pictures and info about Yukon history. Uh, we had a bunch of stuff from the 1970 protest recently. I'll see if I can find some stuff from the, the war, maybe a, a picture of, uh, Theodore Siegel. And you can follow me individually at TJ Breen. Julie, is there anything you'd like the good people of listener land to know? Um, I'm at Julie Bartuka. We're working on the next Yukon Health Journal, which will have a good amount of COVID coverage. Um, and that got shelved back when everything shut down. So looking forward to getting that out soon. And Tom, I was just thinking you should make an Instagram for Old Maine. Oh, that's a good idea. That would be perfect. Yeah. Ken? Uh, well, Saturdays from 3 to 6, 91.7 WHUS in stores. Yukon Sound Alternative is the good music show, which uh, is being pre recorded. This next weekend show is already done, it's up in the cloud. And uh, something that faithful listeners of the podcast should know that on Fridays at 11 o'clock, in the morning, you can listen to our favorite episodes of the 360 Podcast. Now that we've had three years of podcasts, uh, we each, Julie, Tom, and I selected our favorite episodes, and I am preparing those. And as you are listening to this, uh, a bunch of them have already been done, and they're ready to go. And so Fridays at 11 o'clock, you can go to whus.org if you're not in the listening area. And listen again to a favorite episode. I think of those episodes as artisan-selected, curated episodes. So give yes. them a listen. Uh, and thanks again for listening, everyone. We will be back in two weeks uh, with more Yukon for your listening pleasure.